following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 10. We've come to the last portion I want to treat of this Good Shepherd chapter of John 10. Listen as I read. Just a a little footnote to this might be interesting to you. The Feast of Dedication is mentioned as the setting of what is happening here. Only place in the Bible the Feast of Dedication is mentioned. It's not an Old Testament feast. It actually is a feast that was developed in the intertestamental period when the Jewish people were over, taken over by a tyrant from Syria named Antiochus Epiphanes, a man who forbade their religion on pain of death, who made them worship idols and, and do all kinds of blasphemous things. They rose up and threw off that oppression under a man named Judas Maccabeus. And if this is starting to sound familiar to you a little bit, we're talking about what is celebrated today as Hanukkah. And this is the Feast of Dedication, the only place that that particular feast is mentioned in the Bible. Listen to God's Word. At, the t- at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, and for which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. This is God's holy word. Last week on our day off, my wife and I went out and made a purchase of something that we have not owned throughout our married life. It wasn't an impulse purchase. We had talked about it a long time. We bought a home safe. It's not a huge one. It's probably about as wide as this reading desk here and about yay high. Weighs probably 100 pounds. It was about all I could wrestle into the house. Steel box, fireproof. Unless you think I'm unwise to mention publicly that I bought such a thing, that perhaps uh, some 
burglar in the congregation is saying, aha, I will target the pastor's house because now he's got all his stacks of gold bullion and bags full of diamond necklaces in one place where I can easily find them. I promise you it's not worth the gasoline to drive to my house because we bought this safe not for valuables but to be a firebox, basically, protection for valuable records and and vital papers that we wouldn't want to see destroyed in a fire. And as far as burglars go, I really wasn't even thinking of them. So don't bother anybody who's gotten public notice of an opportune burglary. You know, security is a huge business, a huge preoccupation in our daily world. If you would stop to think about all the ways that security impinges on our daily activities and lives, it's really kind of amazing. All the home security systems. I'm told that Lancaster is a rather leading city in the number of cameras that are mounted now at intersections, several dozen of them. If you don't know, if you're planning to steal a car in the city of Lancaster, chances are you better wave at the camera because you're being filmed. And we have had to, as you know, institute a procedure of background checks to work with children in our church, something we'd rather not have to do, but we think it's necessary to do. And if you think of all the ways in which now we worry about keeping property and and children and college students and women on their own and so many other things secure in our world, there's a kind of watchfulness and wariness that has entered into modern life. And we feel like even though we've taken the best measures we know how to take, we still can never be sure that some kind of harm isn't just awaiting us around the corner. But I wonder if you think that much about spiritual security. Because our souls also seek safety and assurance. And are we going to join those people who sense that they are in some kind of continual jeopardy of being lost from the protection and caretaking of their God and Savior? There are, after all, very prominent Christian groups, denominations, or branches of formal Christianity, and, and they vary a lot. They're all over the map. Those who, who uh, you know, they don't, they're not similar in worship practice or other things, but there are many groups who actually value the idea that people must be in a, a sort of state of suspense about the eventual outcome of their souls. We wouldn't want to tell them you can be absolutely assured because some of the leaders of these groups will come right out and tell you. They would stop working. They would have a sinful presumption. And they would simply not apply themselves to the Christian life as if somehow eternal security came from working really hard to be good for a lifetime. That is not what eternal security is about. And the text that we read this morning, if we only had this great passage of John 10, 27 to 30, we would have really a rock of Gibraltar foundation for the Christian's security of salvation and keeping unto the end in Christ. The entire doctrine that is called the final perseverance of the saints can be drawn from the words of Jesus here. Now, I've had people come to me and say, why do you call it the perseverance of the saints? That sounds like that's our effort. We're persevering. Shouldn't it be the preservation of the saints? Well, the fathers of the church that 
worked on these doctrines in the past, chose to say perseverance. We persevere because we are preserved. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We've already learned in this 10th chapter of John that Jesus claimed to be the authentic shepherd of his people as opposed to any imposters, any fakes who wouldn't properly do the job in history. He also claimed to be the door of the sheep by which the lambs, the the newborn souls, enter the kingdom of God. And last time we saw him say that he is the great, or I said supreme shepherd, the one who does the greatest thing of all by laying down his life for the sheep. Well, today as we close dealing with this particular chapter, I want you to see it as a tremendous statement of a a last thing that our great shepherd does in providing ultimate spiritual security for his flock, for those who belong to him. Not only do we enter into real and authentic eternal life through Christ, we are preserved, we do persevere in that life because of him. And our continuance in new life in Christ does not depend, this is my thesis today, it does not depend on our feeble hold upon our Lord and Savior. Rather, it is all about his firm, infallible grip upon us. I just have two large points to draw for you, put before you from this text today. And they're both asking you to look at something in a two-sided or dualistic way. The first point I see here is in verses 24 to 26, and I would headline it by saying, unbelief must be viewed in two different ways. You know that we, if you've been with us, that for the past many chapters here, at least since about chapter 5, Jesus has constantly faced an audience of antagonistic Israelite leaders. That that uh, sequence of, of those hostile discussions is going to more or less end now. Uh, not that there's no more hostile action towards Jesus in John, but these discussions more or less break up after this point as we go into chapter 11. But we've had these people who come primarily skeptics, challengers, not satisfied with who he is and what he does, even though they witnessed his miracles, even though they saw him multiply bread and heal people and a blind man. You remember how they practically beat up that blind man? Oh, you weren't really blind or, you know, they found some way to uh, take him away from being an authentic witness. And now they come once more and it says here that that uh, they gathered around him. That really isn't as strong as the Greek verb, which means they hemmed him in. You know, they were like in a tight circle right in his face and said to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I must say, as antagonistic as these people were, it is true that Jesus had not yet, as reported in John's gospel, he had not yet said the plain and simple sentence, I am the Messiah of Israel. Now, he had said many, many things to make him unique. My father and I are one. I come from above. You come from below. My father's in heaven. Your father is the devil. You know, he had said many things like that to tell them, of course, if they'd been paying attention and wanted to seek him in faith, that he wasn't a mere man, a mere teacher or rabbi. But he never had said yet, I am the expected Messiah. 
And that's what they were looking for and, and almost demanding here. And yet we know that if he had worked a, a miracle like feeding the 5,000 three times a day on their front doorsteps, they still would have said, you need to do something more, prove something more, say something that you haven't yet said. What is being shown to us here, and, and we've seen it over past weeks, it's not a new point at all. I, I find as I look back at notes from previous Sundays, we've talked a lot about the nature of unbelief. Unbelief, as shown here, is a simple refusal to face facts that are in front of you, well-evidenced facts, fulfilled prophecy, miraculous deeds. And it's as if people are saying, no, 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 God, I refuse to accept the evidence. I don't care. My agnosticism is going to continue to hold you at arm's length no matter what you say or what you do. You haven't told us enough. Don't you know somebody like that today, probably within your circle of family or work co-workers, someone who says, oh, yes, all that Christian stuff, but why hasn't God, you know, and they'll give it to you, what he hasn't spoken, what he hasn't done, despite all he has said that is truly marvelous. Now, under this point then, that is the human explanation of unbelief, refusal to accept the evidence. But now look what comes in verse 26, a, a parallel additional explanation of the existence of unbelief. And this time, you'd have to say it's really more from the divine perspective. Because verse 26 has Jesus say, here's a reason you don't believe, because you're not part of my flock. It's not just that you refuse because this is what the sinful human nature from Adam does, refuse the truth. Remember what the very first refusal of truth was in the, in the Bible, in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said that? I don't think so. And that's what people are doing today, refusing the truth. That's the human explanation. It's something we all do as we're born and come into this world. But now we're being told, well, another reason that you're an unbeliever is you haven't been called to be in the flock of Christ. Now, maybe you're confused for a moment and you think we're saying that, okay, here's group A who are unbelievers because they refuse, and over here is group B, and they're unbelievers because God hasn't eternally called them. That isn't what I'm saying. We're saying that both of these explanations apply to all unbelievers. Viewed humanly, they're unbelievers because they refuse the truth. Viewed from a divine perspective, they're unbelievers because God has chosen in his mysterious eternal counsels not to break into their skepticism and their hostility and to open the eyes and ears of faith for them. And he simply let them remain what they are. He didn't cause them to be an unbeliever. They caused that, but he did not take them out of their unbelief as he has done for others. Now, of course, that causes some people a problem. We're up against the mysterious sovereignty of God in in election and why he designs to save one and not another. And, and here again, some just get more angry and their unbelief deepens and they shake their fist and say, God, you're not allowed to call somebody and not somebody else. Well, that is the point where the man or woman of faith says, I don't understand it either. I can't explain that to you either. 
But God, in his mysterious eternal counsels, born of his love, born of his mercy, is allowed to be God and do what he will do. And Jesus certainly believed in this concept that we call divine election or the doctrines of grace. Here in John's gospel, we spent time in John 6, 44, quite a few weeks ago, when he said, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. It's the Father that breaks open that steel hard case of unbelief and allows a skeptical person to embrace Christ. So human unbelief should and must be blamed first upon our own sinful refusal as a human being to know the truth. You can never blame God for making you an unbeliever. That's what you were born to be as you were born in sin. But then we see that there's this divine perspective that looks at it and says, well, you folks, Jesus was saying to these particular leaders, are just evidencing to me that you don't believe because you're not part of God's flock. God has not called you. God has not opened your minds and your hearts. And that is a mystery, folks, which must remain locked to our comprehension this side of heaven. But one day, I believe, we're going to be able to look upon it and say, glory to God. He does all things well for his own reason. Now, my second point here that also has a dualistic nature is in verses 28 to 29 in particular. And this really is the core of the text. I would label this point a believer's twofold basis of security. There's a twofold reason why people don't believe. And there's a twofold dual reason why some do come to true saving faith and must remain and will remain secure. A twofold strength and power and security. First, that which is contributed by Jesus Christ himself, as spoken here, and then that of God the Father, if you want to say, clinching the deal. Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I give it, present tense. He gives it to those who trust in him today and they already have it. Eternal life that will, of course, be experienced in full and beyond this life, physical life on earth, but we have it now. You have to stop sometimes and ponder that. A gift that is eternal. A gift that cannot possibly go away or expire. You know, I was challenging myself to try to think of a gift I've been given in the last 10 or 20 years that, let's say, 20 years ago or even five years ago, and and I'm pleased my wife is listening, so it's not that I haven't been given some nice things, but I can't think too easily of things I've been given that are precious objects in use every single day by me, and, and I say, wow, that, that gift, I'm just going to keep valuing it every day, and 20 years from now, I'll still, I can't even remember what most of the gifts are I've gotten in the last 10 or 20 years. Why? Because they go out of style, they break, uh, they had to be returned, they were the wrong size. You know, there's all kinds of reasons. We lose them, I remember uh, 50 years or so ago uh, that I know for a fact I possessed the rookie baseball cards of several big-time standout Hall of Fame heroes. The ones I can remember 
are Mickey Mantle, Sandy Koufax, and Willie Mays. I had their rookie cards. And there were others besides in a nice shoebox in the attic when I went to college labeled Michael's Things. Do not disturb. Warning. Electric fence. You will be... I don't know what all I wrote on that box, but I know it was clearly designated. I came back from college, and I was in the attic for something, and I said, Mom, where'd that box go? And she said, Oh, well, that was your kid stuff. I just threw that out. Mom, that was a hedge against my retirement that you threw out. And I've held it against her ever since then. But... You know, that's, that's the way gifts go. My friends gave me those cards. We probably swapped for some other player or something. And it's gone. Well, Jesus gives us the superb gift of his salvation and lordship, being our Lord and Savior. And hey, this is a gift mom cannot throw away. She can't mistake it for something worthwhile and, and discard it or lay it off to the side. Look at what this gift is said here. Being eternal, it is the antidote to what is called perishing. You might have missed that in this verse when Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Sometime we really need to take that word perish and study it and show you all the places that it shows up because perish means the death of your soul, the shipwreck of your soul spiritually. You can't have that, Jesus said, if you have my gift of eternal life because it's eternal. It banishes the whole idea of perishing. Now, that doesn't say that a Christian who has that gift may not backslide, may not have a whole time in their life, and maybe some of you are in this kind of a time where you're not praying very well, you're not paying attention to God's Word, you're not in good Christian fellowship, you don't worship very often, you're trampling on some principle of God's Word in your way you live your life. You say, well, I guess I've sacrificed the gift. Not possible if you have the gift of eternal life because eternal life is eternal from the moment it is received unending after that. You can lose all kinds of things in this world, your job, your friends, your reputation. But an authentic child of God in Christ cannot lose the irrevocable gift of eternal life. And this is all because of not not what we're doing to grasp the gift, you see. It's all about the strength of the giver. It's founded on what Jesus did on the cross. It's founded on the wonderful breaking open of the tomb on Easter morning. His new life, his resurrection life is a resurrection gift to us. The sheep do not bolster their own security. It's the work of the shepherd is the whole point of this chapter. We sang that new song this morning, or old song made new, I guess, in our service that says, He will hold me fast. It doesn't say, I'm holding fast. He will hold me fast. And it struck me when I was introduced, actually, that song in one of those little Presbyterian coincidences, I just met with this song last week, and the minute I saw it, I said, we're going to sing that this Sunday because I knew of the theme of the sermon. And I thought right away when I was reading the words of the song of the benediction in First Thessalonians 5 that we use sometimes where Paul 
makes that benediction in, in that book, and he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will perform it. There's no missing it there. Or the benediction in Jude, it says, now unto him who's able to keep us from falling away and able to present us before his presence with the greatest joy. You see, in those benedictions, the ability all is stressed upon the shepherd, the giver of the great gift. Now, that would be tremendous. If Jesus had just said that and ended there at verse 28, it would have been fine. We would have said, wonderful, praise God for that gift of security in Christ. But he made it even better with verse 29. Look at what he adds when he says, my father who has given the flock to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. It might just be that you would say, well, you know what? I respect Jesus, but after all, he was man as well as divine, and and maybe he might miss up a little bit in his shepherding work, and, and some soul would wander away and slip through his care, and that person would be gone. Well, Jesus says, if you don't think I can do this job, let me tell you who's standing behind me. God, the creator, the creator of the worlds. Who will steal anyone from the possession of God most high? After all, isn't he the one that the scripture calls the almighty, the all able time after time? And so, it's not only that nobody can snatch a soul from Jesus Christ, the Savior, but no one can snatch a soul from our Father. I've always loved the statement that's found in Colossians 3.3 that tells redeemed men and women, your life is hid, concealed, with Christ in God. I like those four words working together. We've been emphasizing prepositions in the last few sermons, maybe a little English grammar squeezing its way through. With Christ in God. To me, that tells me my soul is garrisoned within a tremendous castle. One of our sons just did a trip to Ireland, and I know we've still not seen too many of his pictures, but I know he saw castles. You see castles in Britain. And you think of these tremendous stone edifices in which people would barricade themselves against an enemy. Think of the stone edifice of God the Father and your soul garrisoned along with Christ in God. What a wonderful picture. I used to play a game with my sons sometimes, and maybe you dads have done similar things. You know, an adult male's hand, until you get old and weak like I am now, but when you're young, your hand is pretty strong. And I had three sons, and we used to play a game once in a while. There might be a piece of wrapped candy or a quarter or something like that, and I'd hold it in my hand and say, okay, if you can get it, it's yours. Of course, I'm, and my sons are, and when they were three or four, they, they couldn't open the hand. But of course, I did open the hand to them and didn't withhold from them whatever was there. But the point is, had I wanted it, 
to remain concealed and them not to have access. They would not have had access. Now, of course, there came a day when they were 18 when they could have just as easily broken my fingers, but we didn't still play the game at that point in time. John Calvin wrote this quote, Our salvation is certain in Christ because it is in the hand of God. Our faith is sure to be weak. We are prone to waver, Calvin said, but God is sufficiently powerful to scatter with his mere breath all of our adversaries. God scattering with his breath the adversary of your soul. And so Jesus could conclude this passage with something he said before in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. Now that wasn't saying they were the same person. There's a distinction between the, the Father and the Son, even though they're both divine and that marvelous mystery of the Trinity. But what he's saying here is not in terms of their personhood, but their action. He's saying, the Father and I do the same things. We have the same work, the same goals. We act in tandem. So we should come away from this passage with a picture of the hand of Jesus Christ. And that was a human hand, you remember, a carpenter's hand roughened by work, a hand that had scars on it and we believe has scars visible on it today. And the hand of God the Father that we cannot possibly picture, the hand of the master worker and creator, the hand of the Son, the hand of the Father, containing us, clenched around us. And Jesus in this passage is saying in so many words to the enemies of our souls, I dare you to try to open these two hands and take away the one I have chosen before the world began, the one I have called, the one I have awakened to faith, the one I died for, the one I rose for, the one my spirit is now sanctifying, the one my Father wants to have as his own in eternity. I dare anybody to break those two hands. Christian, I can promise you today, whatever your situation, some certainly struggle with assurance. I did. Throughout my teen years, at least, I struggled a lot because it seemed people were telling me I was a Christian as long as I was doing a good job or feeling great about it, and I didn't always feel great about it. I thank God for teaching me the truth that in all circumstances and all times, it's the hands of our God gripping me, not my hand holding His. And our continuance in eternal life does not depend on my feeble feelings, on my hold on things at this particular moment. It's about His grip on me. So I urge you to be confident today if you know Christ. Your spiritual security today and forever rests on nothing less than God's two-handed grip upon your soul. Our Father, I pray that your saints would be encouraged, would be built up in this truth of assurance, of certainty and security in an insecure world. We're afraid so often. We think we have failed or We've done the worst thing, and and you no longer want to see or hear from us. Jesus has told us that is not true. 
Thank you for security in the Lord Jesus Christ and through his keeping power. Amen.